know, it's fascinating when individuals stand up and get counted. They say this is important for our country, not just them personally. It's not them personally. It's a bigger good. That's what Chris Kiefer, Kiefer just absolutely fills that bill. He's the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. He's also the host of the The Couple podcast. Chris, thanks for finding time. <laughs> My pleasure. It's always great to be on, Mike. Well, and I love that this is coming at a time when you've just had a really big win in getting nuclear included in Canada's green bond. So tell us a little bit quickly about that. I'll come to much bigger pro- uh, or some bigger issues with nuclear, but I mean, I love to celebrate a win and it shows progress. Absolutely. You know, I've been in this just for about three and a half years, got into it uh, out of some climate concern. My son was born, discovered nuclear energy here in Ontario. You know, we have one of the only deeply decarbonized grids in an industrial economy in the world. Um, and uh, so that inspired me to start a nonprofit and the podcast, as you mentioned. Um, and yeah, three years ago, um, we kind of went to battle, um, at least, you know, went to advocate and lobby with the, uh, the liberal government and got a pretty cold reception. Um, they were working on this green bond framework um, and they, uh, under the direction of uh, former Greenpeace activist and now Minister of uh, Energy and Climate Change, uh, he, uh, sorry, climate change and the environment, um, you know, he, in that framework, listed nuclear alongside the sin stocks, uh, gambling, yeah. uh, firearms, tobacco. It wasn't quite like trade in uh, exotic endangered species or something, but, uh, you know, kind of really slandered Canada's nuclear sector and the 76,000 people working in it. Um, we organized uh, a big House of Commons petition, uh, you know, mobilized about 15% of that sector to sign on. Uh, lots of conversations, met the Prime Minister, uh, met uh, Seamus O'Regan and other ministers uh, on the federal Liberal side, and we've seen a total U-turn. Um, and uh, kind of the wish list has been granted. Uh, nuclear is now in the green bond, uh, refurbishments, large nuclear, small nuclear. Similarly, the investment tax credit includes all levels of nuclear. Canada Infrastructure Bank gave a billion dollars for the West First SMRs at Darlington. Um, you know, got to say, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the direction things have taken. And it's, it's been great to play my own small part in, in making that happen. Well, it wasn't a small part. It wasn't a small part. And I, I don't mean uh, uh, modesty or anything. It was not a small part. This was huge. You know, public perception of nuclear energy had been poisoned by a phenomenal amount of misinformation. And it's been a struggle, but it's been a struggle where you see progress in so many different areas. In fact, I would say, uh, you know, there are some sort of holdouts there, but there's so many countries that are turning to nuclear as the obvious. It should have been obvious solution. If climate change is your deal, how about something that doesn't have emissions that lasts for, you know, a generation? It's a generational thing. And it's just taken a long time to sort of beat that down. And one other victory I'm, I'm counting for you is I saw that the Ontario Federation of Labor Come on, they, they wouldn't have been described as big proponents of nuclear energy. But of course, this will be a big benefit to unionized workers. But they've turned around too. that place yeah. apart. Absolutely. You know, one of our slogans is the best climate solutions belong in every party. Conservatives are definitely on board, uh, at least rhetorically. I do have some concerns, actually, um, with, uh, you know, how they'll manage the mu- nuclear file, uh, you know, if in government, once in government, uh, you know, the liberals are on side now. The NDP um, have really been disciplined, I think, by organized labor. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it is fairly concentrated in Ontario, but again, 76,000 workers, Saskatchewan, Ontario, uh, in uranium and in nuclear. These are the best jobs out there. Um, and this is the so-called just transition. You know, former coal workers who worked at, uh, you know, our coal plants that provided 25% of Ontario's electricity, they transitioned into nuclear. And those workers are making their voices heard loud and strong in the labor movement. Um, they're demanding respect. They're getting it. And, you know, you've seen the NDP, which, you know, let's face it, they're, they're worried about hemorrhaging votes to the Green Party. 
um, they're being disciplined, I think, by organized labor. And so it's creating a, a pretty interesting dynamic because there's some old blowhards uh, in the NDP still. Um, but, uh, you know, they're coming around. It's remarkable, uh, and I'm going now outside of Canada too, it's remarkable how determined uh, opponents of nuclear have been in the face of an avalanche of evidence, in the face of the failure and at least the recognition that wind and solar, for example, are intermittent power sources. And, of course, we're seeing a blowback against wind and solar in so many areas. Uh, we've seen companies canceling projects, but we've seen lawsuits filed, et cetera, et cetera. Now, not to say that nuclear certainly has had to fight lawsuits too, but it just seems like the tides turning when you see, you know, when you see Japan turning back toward nuclear energy, you know, they're the Fukushima people and they have overcome those fears. And of course, we're not talking the same caliber of plant. You know, I mean, there's been a hell of a lot of progress since Fukushima, let alone Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, listen, uh, Fukushima is is really your worst case scenario. I mean, that was one of the, I think it was the fourth largest earthquake ever, ever measured. You know, all of the deaths uh, were related to the earthquake, not the uh, radiation from the nuclear accident. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, you know, that was three simultaneous meltdowns of large gigawatt scale reactors. No one died as a result of radiation. Uh, there was a yeah. panicked evacuation. and Unfortunately, over a thousand people lost their lives. And I don't like to sort of allege blood on the hands of anybody, but, you know, the usual suspects in terms of the anti-nuclear activists were almost giddy um, and playing into, you know, a culture of fear, which unfortunately did lead to deaths, but it was from this botched and rushed evacuation. Um, so the evidence is now clear on that, on Three Mile Island. You know, nuclear accidents, there's, there's radiation issues in the plant in terms of an industrial accident. Beyond the fence line, uh, certainly at Fukushima and, and particularly at Three Mile Island, you know, the highest dose the general public received there was about a chest x-ray. I, uh, I'm going to be at work in a couple hours uh, doing a whole bunch of chest x-rays today. Yeah. Um, so we just, you know, nuclear has to be considered alongside the other choices that we have. There's risks and benefits and alternatives. Uh, but again, in terms of a sort of sober analysis that I've made over the last few years um, and, you know, with very much a public health lens, uh, I think nuclear comes out on top in terms of our, our low carbon options. But speaking of that, how should we evaluate when we're making choices uh, of energy sources? You know, how do we, we side them up one by one? Obviously, things like reliability would have to be pretty high. Sure. Cost would have to be pretty high. What, what, what kind of criteria? Because we, we have jumped into this debate big time, and I'm going back over the last 20 years, without any framework agreed upon. And there should have been. I mean, we found out the hard way that reliability might be pretty high up on that list when you look in Europe and all of a sudden there was no reliability. Of, of course, reliability is the, of absolute utmost importance. And it really speaks to the kind of privilege we have in the Western world, um, our blindness uh, to energy, our blindness to the material world, what we take for granted flicking that switch on, you know, and how pissed off we get when, when there's even just a brief blackout. Mm -hmm. or, you know, I mean, Louis C.K. has that great joke about uh, being up in an airplane and someone uh, ragging on the Wi-Fi not working. And he's like, you're in a, you know, a tube flying yeah. almost at the speed of sound through this, you know, how long it took for the, uh, you know, the, the cattle trains to work their way across this country. And now you're in LA in five hours and you're just griping about some minor thing. Anyway, you know, the challenge is not to create lots of clean energy. The challenge is to replace fossil fuel services. And, you know, like love them or hate them, fossil fuels enable modern civilization. You know, all the, you know, this on my ears, everything in our, in our, in our house. I mean, if, if you didn't grow it, um, if you didn't cut it down out of wood or it's not leather, then yeah, it's coming to you as a, as a mineral, which was, you know, mined using fossil fuels, or it's literally a petroleum product, 6,000 products out of a barrel of oil. Fossil fuels are not easy to replace. 
um, and we need to replace their services. So what are those? You know, it's things like reliable baseload electricity, um, which nuclear does an exquisitely good job of. And we've gotten up to, you know, 75% nuclear in France, and that has powered a growing economy um, while accidentally decarbonizing the whole system. So I think that tells you something pretty remarkable that you can, again, accidentally decarbonize um, while, you know, having a healthy growing economy. Um, so, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to look at this. I, I'm not, I try not to anyway, be dogmatic or, you know, pick a favorite just based on aesthetics. But when I line up my goals in terms of deep decarbonization, reliable, low cost grid, um, even things again, like, uh, workers rights, you know, dignified employment, um, a local supply chain, you know, nuclear just consistently knocks the ball out of the park. And when we have, you know, mostly total Chinese dominance of the solar supply chain, credible allegations of forced or even slave labor, you know, dismal environmental regulations over there. Um, you know, we need to not be romantic in how we make our energy choices, but be uh, be sober about it. So I'm hoping some sobriety is coming back. It has a tendency to when you have an energy crisis, when prices spike or when energy security concerns raise their heads again. You know, Francis Fukuyama is wrong. It's not the end of history. We're heading into a multipolar world, disrupted supply chains, uh, you know, and I, I think that's getting reflected now in some of the maturity of decision makers just out of necessity. Uh, something you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, yes, we are, we can laugh at ourselves when we have any disruption. I mean, I'd be with that. Like if, if my computers don't work, you know, my goodness gracious, you know, but it is amazing to me though, that over the last couple of years, we needed some harsh lessons to find out, Hey, we need energy. I mean, it was so like, I have lots of time for people have disagreement. But when you're talking about something so fundamental, so common sense, one of the lines I use here, Chris, all the time is we're being led by people who didn't realize that the sun doesn't shine every day. I mean, yeah. it's, it, but that's not unfair. They literally didn't yeah. in Germany. And you've watched about a 20% exodus of their manufacturing uh, base of their economy. Why? Because they need the reliability. You know, and they need, you know, you need cost effective, but you need the reliability because what, look at the prices when they started to run, run, didn't run out of energy, but when energy became more scarce, more expensive, oh my gosh, you're seeing 400%, 500% increases, you know, so all of that comes together. I, I'm just sort of astounded that we had to start at that place, you know, let yeah. alone, a, we didn't even get to make a choice of which one we prefer. We didn't know no, we needed it. This speaks to this idea of, you know, romant romantic choices. And I don't mean, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah and you but don't I mean of, dull lighting. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I mean, I mean dull lighting. And it's the sense that the Germans have a word for the doldrums of winter when there is no wind and no sun. It's called Dunkelflaute. Mm -hmm. This is a, you know, a mm -hmm. culture that has a word for this. And yet they installed 60 gigawatts of solar in a country where the capacity factor is less than 10%. So this was a like historic misallocation. Like say what you want about yeah. solar in Australia, I think there's still massive problems with it there, but this was just a catastrophically stupid idea. Um, you know, and, and we're seeing that replicated. And unfortunately, Canada is aiding and abetting that with our Canada Germany hydrogen alliance, which if you can believe it, you know, and you want to talk about the Rube Goldberg machine of a wind and solar based grid, I mean, it gets crazier. You know, in Germany, uh, they're trying to get rid of gas. Um, Russia did the well. Russia cut them off. Um, you know, they're delusional, but they're thinking they can replace that gas with Canadian hydrogen. So we're going to have wind turbines running electrolysis, cracking water into hydrogen. 
We're going to put that through the Haber-Bosch process, make ammonia. We're going to have a whole fleet of ships transporting ammonia over to Germany. They're going to crack it back from ammonia into hydrogen and then burn it. I mean, the efficiencies we're talking about are, you know, 20, 30 percent. You lose all of that energy. And Canada's going to be subsidizing that. We have a 40 percent investment tax credit to hydrogen. Canadian government just gave a $125 million loan to uh, Everwind Fuels out in, uh, mm-hmm. in the Maritimes. Um, and, you know, these are reckless and irresponsible decisions in a time where, you know, we need to prioritize where we're putting our money because we're going crazy into debt. What have you found the biggest misconception still? I mean, let's just flash forward a few years. You know, it was everything if I went back five years with you or three years when you were, you started uh, Canadians for Nuclear Energy and all the other work you were doing. But what about now? Do you, what do you still bump into? Is it is it about the storage or the waste or... Yeah, it's, it's largely moved to the waste. I mean, I think people have gotten over the sort of Simpsons hangover of three-eyed fish and, uh, you know, glowing <laughs> nuclear waste that, you know, finds its way to the, the nuclear plant in Homer Simpson's car and whatever, right? But <clears throat> yeah, the waste issue is still there. And I mean, that's a, a selling point for nuclear energy. It's it's not a weakness. I mean, the nuclear energy, the, the nuclear industry can account for every microgram of waste that they've created in terms of spent fuel. The total amount that Canada's made would fit in a hockey rink stacked one telephone pole high. I mean, this is the ideal waste stream. It's not a liquid. It's not a gas. It's just a very dense, solid pellet, um, which we have managed without a single injury or fatality related to radiation. Not just Canada, but the entire civil nuclear uh, world in 70 years. And you may think that's crazy, and it does sound crazy because nuclear waste is dangerous. Fresh out of the reactor, you'd get a lethal dose of radiation in a few seconds. But... We make dangerous things safe. For God's sakes, we make aviation safe. We cram hundreds of men, women, and children into, again, these little thin skin pressurized tubes, put them up at 30,000 feet, go near the speed of sound over oceans, you know, thousands of mission critical moving parts, air traffic control, like the complexity of making aviation safe is insane. When it comes to managing nuclear waste, it's pretty simple. You take the fuel out of the reactor underwater, you put it in a spent fuel pool, it loses a lot of its radioactivity. You put it in a uh, dry cask uh, storage, um, which is a, basically a concrete and steel box. It sits there for a few hundred years. And after 400 years, you could take a fuel element and hold it in your hand. It wouldn't be dangerous to you. Um, so radioactivity decays. The waste gets less and less dangerous over time. When people talk about millions and billions of years, I mean, you and I um, are experiencing 4,600 radioactive decays inside our body from potassium-40. Uh, potassium's the number one uh, intracellular positively charged ion in our bodies. And there's a portion that's radioactive. Um, that has a half-life of a couple billion years. Um, you know, it's just, it gets ludicrous. I mean, what are we going to do? Store ourselves in, you know, lead line casks underground or something? Uh, this, this is a, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's not that there's not challenges, but again, far easier than making aviation safe. Well, you know, and we're part of this absolutism you see everywhere. Like we've got to get to zero emissions. You know, I mean, really good luck with that. In this case, it's zero radiation. And I'm laughing and you're an emergency room doctor. You say you're going to go and x-ray some people today or whatever, you know, MRIs and all that. People don't seem to understand the exposure we already have. It is not a case of getting to zero on this. Yeah. And yet I, I encounter that. Well, you know, radiation, as you said, the Simpsons three-eyed fish, you know, it's just the foundation of the discussion is so uh, superficial. And, you know, the industries and regulators, God bless them. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting culture. These guys accept that and they accept the challenge of it. They're engineers. They love solving problems, even if they're essentially unsolvable problems. Because, again, there's no, nowhere that's zero radiation in the entire world. I've been two kilometers underground into this uh, 
a dark matter research center in the in the Canadian Shield. We took a, an elevator two kilometers down because they're trying to get away from cosmic rays uh, and muons and study neutrinos, et cetera. Anyway, there's still a ton of radiation down there. It's just a fact of life. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I have, I have parents coming in with toddlers that have fallen and bonked their heads and they're begging me to radiate their child's brain with a dose of radiation that's equal to what you'd get natural background for a year. There's, uh, you know, in Kerala, India, there's an area that has a background level of radiation uh, as high as the highest contaminated areas in Fukushima. You know, should they bulldoze up their beaches and put that all in plastic bags? Um, there's solid evidence around the world that low-dose radiation, I mean, we can't measure and actually detect harms from it. Um, there are far bigger fish to fry in terms of carcinogens out there. Um, and those are the boring old things that we take for granted because they're, you know, even if they're visible, even if you see the smog, you don't think about it. You know, you smoke a cigarette, you don't think about that. You have a, you know, <laughs> your exhaust is broken on your car. These are the dangerous things, actually, but they're mundane. They're everyday. I would think, though, on the positive note, back to the positive, at least from my point of view, is we are making progress. I don't think it should have been so difficult. And you're the one who's been on the front line with, you know, many people. But I don't think it should have been no, more difficult. The case was straightforward. If we had started with some sort of what's our framework for the ideal energy sources or what are the variables and how do we choose them, all of that kind of thing. But I want to come back to there has been progress made. You know, I, I alluded to Japan, but I think South Korea, it seems like every week, uh, you'd have to know, Chris, that uranium is uh, one of our absolute foundational recommendations for investment portfolios. Obviously, I don't know individuals' investments, you know, and yeah. I'm not suggesting that way, but I'm saying, hey, you better have a look at this stuff. And it's done extremely well. I'm proud of that. Mm -hmm. But it all comes from being able to chronicle. It felt like on a weekly basis, oh, this country is increasing. I mean, look at China, for example, yeah. the huge yeah. growth that they're planning and India, you know, yeah. uh, so there are there is definite progress made. It's astounding, but I mean it's it's interesting. And you know, you look at why countries build nuclear, and there's there's two reasons, um, and they all boil down really to energy security. So why did Ontario go gangbusters building nuclear? Well, we didn't have our own coal deposits or gas deposits. Um, we were importing coal from the U.S. You know, we outstripped our hydroelectricity, mostly Niagara Falls, um, and we were rapidly growing and industrializing. So we started importing that Midwestern coal, shipping across the Great Lakes and great big barges. Well, in 1973, the OPEC crisis hits and a knock-on effect is the price of coal doubles. And that was a, a big blow. Luckily, we, you know, we had you know, the second largest nuclear research center in the world after the States uh, over at Chalk River because in the World War II, mm -hmm. all the allies brought their researchers over here. We'd been uh, developing this nuclear reactor, the CANDU, and it came just in time. And if you look at you know, when we really went gangbusters, commissioning 22 large candy reactors in 22 years. That's a large reactor every year. Uh, that was totally in response to, uh, to the, the doubling of the price of coal. And so, you know, why is Eastern Europe the El Dorado of nuclear right now? Well, you know, they don't want to be dependent on Russian gas. Uh, the other reason, uh, you know, that countries go nuclear, um, the Emirates just brought on, um, uh, well, they're going to have yep. 5,600 megawatts of nuclear soon. 25% of the electricity will be decarbonized in sort of one fell swoop here. They didn't basically have a nuclear engineer, you know, 15 years ago, and now they've, you know, developed quite the workforce. Anyway, I mean, that frees up more LNG for export and earn some arbitrage. And the Europeans have been dumb enough to screw up their energy system. So I don't really think you can, uh, you can sling mud at the uh, Emiratis. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, I guess, in terms of the real politique of why nuclear gets built, that's why. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen for climate reasons, because it's, it's really hard. And again, if I want to steel man nuclear and say why it's a bad thing or we shouldn't do it, it's because it's difficult. It takes incredibly highly skilled people, uh, 
incredible institutions. But the great thing is, is in Canada, we have them. We've developed those. Um, you know, here in Ontario, we've been refurbishing, which means life extending our candor reactors. Every 40 years, you can, uh, you can actually swap out the core of a candor reactor. It's like an engine swap out. And you're as good or better than new condition because you've got upgraded parts and controls. Uh, those are big nuclear mega projects. Those are coming in six months early. Those are coming in under, uh, under budget. Um, so we're proving that we can do big, complex mega projects here in Canada. We should be enormously proud of it. And I think that gives me hope that we're going to be able to, to pull it off again. That, that's another side. I'm glad you're, you've brought it up because this is a real opportunity for Canada. We've had, as you say, decades long experience here. Uh, you know, we've got the technology. Obviously, we've got an educated workforce that we can still draw on for more. I mean, I just don't want people to lose the economic because that's another thing you rarely hear. Oh, wind and solar are going to give us the opportunity. Are you kidding? We've got sitting in our backyard. We could go out to the world right now you know, with proven technology. I just, I just think it's a remarkable opportunity for Canada. And, you know, we're actually uh, getting that opportunity. Um, you know, we have sold candy reactors around the world to China, Korea, Argentina, mm -hmm. Romania, and the Romanians are interested in building a couple more candus. Um, and so they just signed a $3 billion uh, loan from Canada, the Export Bank approved that. Every single dollar of that $3 billion is going to be spent, you know, here in Canada in our nuclear supply chain. Um, and, you know, this is a sovereign backed debt from Romania. They've paid back their other debts. Uh, they borrowed twice before for their other candy reactor builds. Um, so this is a total win, win, win for Canada here. Now, we we are in a moment where um, I think we're a bit being a bit naive. We have this precious Canadian technology. Candu is ranked as you know one of Canada's 10 top engineering um, achievements. And, you know, we're no... Uh, We've been incredible in terms of our, you know, the Avro Arrow, for instance, or BlackBerry. I mean, we're, we're a country of real innovators. Um, but, you know, because of a lack of a kind of cohesive national industrial policy that, that can really take advantage of this made in Canada design, this incredible supply chain, this economic multiplier factor. Like, did you know that every dollar yeah. we spend on Canada, we get a buck 40 back in GDP? It's extraordinary. But due to a yeah. lack of vision, there's the risk uh, that we won't make the investments um, to to modernize the latest Candu design, the utilities are not asking for small reactors. Uh, you know, Bruce Power has been approved for 1,400 megawatts of new nuclear. They want to use that full capacity, so they've said to the Candu folks, "You got to come back to us with an even bigger reactor." Um, they're working on it, but you know, the government is again wasting 125 million on on this ridiculous Canada Germany hydrogen alliance. Um, if they were to match, you know, with a consortium of, of industry folks, match that investment in R&D, we could get that in time to be competitive and win that bit at Bruce. But these are the things where, you know, despite all the wins, I feel like there's still a lot of work to do. And I'm just this nosy emerge doc who's <laughs> kind of fallen into this. And for whatever reason, it's uh, it's been working for me. So hopefully we can carry that message forward. Well, it, it is a key message, and obviously uh, political considerations jump in, really electoral considerations, and that's been driving way too much of our energy policy. I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, seriously, uh, but I'll tell you, we're going to look back on what we've done squandering our opportunities in energy. I, I, I have trouble imagining a bigger mistake. The, yeah. There was I always ask, well, you wanted to cancel that project. What did we get in return? Right. You know, because Canada, 1.6% of emissions. You know, we've got Christia Freeland, our, our deputy uh, prime minister, finance minister, clearly stating with the financial times, Canada can't move the dial. So where the action is for us would be to do exactly what you're saying, share our expertise, export our expertise, and help other countries reduce their emissions that are much more significant than ours. Yeah. And yeah, I, we'll wait and see if they take advantage. I think the green bond thing, you know, we're finally nuclear... 
you know, isn't the bastard child in the corner. That that's a that's a good start. Thanks to one hundred percent. Thanks to your group. You know, I got. They, you, know, you, you talk the language politicians understand. I got ten thousand signatures. You want to be yeah. on the other side of that? Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean seventy six thousand workers, and again, the supply yeah. chain in Ontario that it feeds a lot of families. But you know, in terms of the wasted opportunity, the twenty tens were such a sweet decade, and we squandered them. Right? I mean, the cost of uh, of borrowing went negative. We had negative interest rates after yeah. the financial crisis for a little while. You know. Every single source of primary energy, be it uranium, be it oil, uh, coal, natural gas, dropped peak to trough 90% during that decade. You know, and what did we do? We squandered it on this massive wind and solar buildout, which has shown no real significant size. They can spare a bit of fossil fuels here and there, but they don't decarbonize your, your economy and your society. They, they're cheap. They last 20, 30 years. You got to replace them all. They desecrate landscapes. And, you know, they're mostly relying on forced labor in China and, and, you know, coal fired power to make polysilicon. This is not an environmental success story. Um, But, you know, I think energy is, is really in a lot of people's mind. It's, it's that kind of romantic aesthetic of, you know, harnessing these natural flows. And you forget that you need a machine to turn that uh, photon into an electron. You need a machine to turn that breeze into electricity. And it's a big, ugly machine that consumes a hell of a lot of resources. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad some maturity is coming back in. We, you know, we always say the best time to build a nuclear plant was 10 years ago. The second best time is now. We're in more challenging <laughs> times. It's not going to be easy. Listen, I mean, all the, the yeah. woes with offshore wind right now, <clears throat> those are capital intensive, commodities intensive projects. So is nuclear. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not sad that those projects are failing, but, but it's, uh, you know, it's a warning for, for nuclear as well. It's a big capital intensive project, massive value proposition that wind doesn't give you. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not that the challenges aren't over now. Once a nuclear plant's paid off, um, as we are here in Ontario, I mean, nuclear is the second cheapest source of electricity after hydro. Um, and it is far, far lower than gas, uh, particularly wind and then solar, which we gave these insane feed-in tariff contracts for. And you see that pattern really around the world. There have been economic closures of nuclear plants in the U.S. That's because the price of gas, you know, went down to about $2, uh, you know, uh, for a million BTU on the on Henry Hub, for instance, right? I mean, that created a very challenging environment. And also, you know, this, these subsidies, which are mandating, you know, 30% of the system had to be wind and solar. Um, zero marginal costs can come on and off the grid however they want and knock a nuclear plant offline. So, you know, that era of closures for economic reasons is over. This is a very cheap source of power. And, you know, when we're talking about reshoring industry, a multipolar world, friend shoring, et cetera, bringing energy intensive manufacturing back to this country, you know, say what you want about the battery subsidies. I've got some concerns about those, but if you want a power factory, you need baseload. You Mm -hmm. need baseload. You know, you can't afford to have a production line going off. There's an interesting documentary uh, out of Germany, um, you know, and, and what's actually recorded as a blackout um, is very different from something that disrupts an industrial process. So they have a factory. It makes the uh, copper coils uh, for the wind turbines there. And they've been having millisecond power disturbances, which yes. shut down the entire industrial process. They're offline for three days, very sensitive instruments in these, uh, you know, in these machines that are doing the manufacturing there. Um, so it's these things that, again, we're, we're generally blind to. I think people in finance tend to have more of a systems level view. They're constantly studying energy, you know, materials, commodities. They've got a better sense. Um, but unfortunately, <clears throat> you know, even it drives me nuts. The climate folks, they have zero idea about energy. You know, they're concerned. I share that concern. I, th- I think we've got some really serious challenges ahead. Uh, but if you're energy blind, then the, the solutions you propose are, are they're not helpful. 
well, I say try talking to one about the electrical grid and whether it's ready or not for wind and solar. You know, you want a you want a hopeless feeling conversation, just completely unaware of the challenges that are entailed if we're going to go renewable and the energy grid. And I I, I won't even go there but at this point. Yeah. <clears throat> but now let me just these let me finish with a couple of really simple questions. Start to finish, if you had the permitting, how long does it take to get a nuclear plant built and and running? Well, you know, we have an issue here where our environmental regulations are bad for the environment. So uh, we have the federal environmental impact assessment process. Uh, Bruce Power is working on, you know, getting four large new reactors going up there, um, you know, and they're not scheduled to come online according to current plans until the, I believe the end of the 2030s, maybe 2040s. And that's because the federal environmental impact assessment duplicates a ton of stuff that's already happening provincially um, and takes seven years. Um, and this is, you know, Bruce Power wants to build on a current nuclear site licensed for nuclear. These are some of the most environmentally monitored sites in the world. I mean, there's people out there in their, uh, in their, tra- their waders, their hip waders sampling invertebrate life out in the lake. Um, you know, so if, if this truly is an emergency, we should be, uh, you know, going gangbusters on it. doesn't mean you don't do any ins- assessment, but um, seven years is, is far too long, especially given the urgency of the matter. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're luckily we have a site at Darlington. I wish it was large nuclear. We need large nuclear in Ontario. Unfortunately, there's a path dependency towards SMRs, which are great for small grids like, uh, you know, Saskatchewan in particular, Alberta, Maritimes. Um, but, uh, you know, they've got a, a grandfathered in environmental impact assessment. They're planning on having, you know, one of those SMRs online 2029, 2030, and the others coming on in the early 2030s. Um, it's not a lot of power. Um, wouldn't have been my decision if I ruled the world, but, um, you know, I think, I think that's going to be really interesting testing grounds. A lot of the world's watching that this whole theory of whether going small and modular is going to, is going to save the nuclear industry, uh, is untested. Again, like I said, there's, there's a, it's not easy street yet. We've, we've won a lot of victories. Things are looking pretty, pretty amazing compared to how they were three years ago, but <laughs> there's a lot for the nuclear sector to work out for itself. Let, let me finish with just asking what's the next benchmark for you. So the green bonds was a big benchmark. You had a big campaign, yeah. successful. Is there another benchmark around the corner? It may not be something that you have to advocate to that degree, but you're just going, when I see this, I'll know that another big step forward has been taken. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, if Canada reactors are good enough for Romania uh, with Canadian technology, they should certainly be good enough here at home. Uh, we released a report uh, in July called The Case mm-hmm. for Can Do. Unfortunately, the industry wasn't doing its own job um, selling the virtues of this technology. And that goes way back. Unfortunately, Harper sold off uh, the deployment rights of CanDo to SNC Lavalin for a steal for $15 million. Um, and, you know, they did well in the refurbishments, but they didn't have a vision to uh, developing the technology um, and, and, you know, modernizing the reactor, et cetera. Um, and that's going to take some investment. Um, and it's going to take, again, a cohesive national, national industrial policy. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope we see that happen. That's certainly what we're going to be fighting for. And in terms, again, of the, the politics of this all, um, you know, the liberals, I didn't think this would happen, but they've sort of delivered the wish list here. Uh, the conservatives, they're very pro-nuclear, but I do have this concern that because of a, um, you know, it's in the DNA to be small government, to be careful with your spending. That's all good and fine. Um, don't waste your money like, you know, like it's happening right now with the Canada-Germany Hydrogen Alliance. I think conservatives tend to be pretty energy literate. But if you don't appreciate there's a difference between the natural resource sector and the manufacturing sector, and that takes a different level of government involvement, potentially intervention support, um, 
nuclear's complex. It needs that. And if we want it to be Canadian and we want to continue to harvest the benefits of nuclear, which it's given to this country, that's going to take some some leadership and potentially uh, a bit of a different approach. So, uh, you know, I take a long view. It's going to be interesting. I mean, these projects take a while to come through. Um, there's going to be different politics that arrive and different strategies needed to push things forward. But um, again, I'm, I'm optimistic. Canada's really at the forefront of this and, and it's an exciting time. Well, you know, as I say, I want to finish right back where I started and pat you on the back as president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. You can also check out Chris at uh, the Decouple podcast. Chris, uh, I appreciate you taking your time, but I appreciate even more the work you've done on behalf, I think, of all Canadians. And I think, as I say, it's a global reach. If climate change is your deal, you got to learn about this stuff. Chris, thanks for taking the time. I can do one shameless plug. Um, yes. You're not industry funded whatsoever. So, uh, you know, support helps. Uh, there is a donate button uh, on our website. You can find it at www.c4ne.ca. really helps. We've accomplished a lot. Uh, we'd like to accomplish a lot more. So if you like our work, please support us. And I'll give you my word. I'll be signing on right now. So there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Excellent. All the best.